Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then 
contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. If you have been at this church for any length of time, you have heard a number of sermons on what you might call covenant theology. And what covenant theology means is there is a way that God has worked throughout his scriptures in order to bring about promises that were given unto promises fulfilled. And so today really is one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament that speaks about how exactly the mechanics of the gospel has worked to produce one people. And this one people is from a diverse collection of peoples. And so in the context of today's, uh, of the series we're doing today, today's message will be one of the best messages in terms of in this series on specifically the issue of the covenant. How does the covenant work? How was God able to take the disparate and warring nations and bring them, pacifying them by his grace into one new people? How has he torn down, as it says in Paul's other writings, torn down the dividing wall? How did God do that? We see that clearly here in this chapter. So in the context of this series, Paul has been writing these, these uh, words to the Galatian church, and he's trying to combat heresy. And we've seen over and over again a number of themes that will come up again today, specifically the nature of the law versus the nature of the promise, and how they are not diametrically opposed, but rather are not exactly, they're not able to be opposed because they're not opposites. That is to say, it would be comparing apples to oranges, as I think Paul is making plain here. That in verse 21, is the law contrary to the promises? No. They're not opposed, as many people teach today, but rather they are, uh, they are companions in an overarching theme of God's covenant. And so today we're going to be looking at how does the law work? How was the curse of the law satisfied? And through the curse of the law satisfied, God has then fulfilled the promises given to Abraham through Jesus Christ. A very helpful term for you, if you're not familiar with this term, is the word mediator. 
And the mediator shows up in this passage. There's the word intermediary. Uh, but normally it would be translated as mediator. And a mediator is someone who communicates between two parties. And as we're going to see, God is revealing through the wisdom of Paul in this chapter to the Galatians, he's revealing the nature of Jesus Christ as the perfect mediator, the one through whom the promises of Ab- to given to Abraham are fulfilled. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be able to hopefully expound this chapter with you today. Uh, I, I believe, I'm convinced that this, in seeing how the Father has fulfilled the promises to Abraham, you will be caught off guard by the mystery and beauty of God's wisdom, which was hidden for a time, but through the coming of Christ has been made clear and plain. So I want to look first at faith as the identity of God's children, Uh, that's really our continuing theme through the book of Galatians. Paul isn't just here going off in a discourse that's that's detached to the rest of the book. It actually, he's continuing with the same idea, and we're going to look at that clearly. Then I want to look at how was the curse of the law satisfied. That is, the, the law made demands on those to whom the law was given. And as Paul argues, actually, the law was not just given to the nation of Israel, but indeed the law applies to all people everywhere because of what he says the law is. And then finally, I want to look at how it was fulfilled through Christ, that Paul makes an argument here that is stunning and beautiful. It uses wordplay, it uses suspense, it uses equivocation, speaking it in two different ways, using the same word, and it, and it actually is Paul's way of explaining to these Galatian Christians the beauty of God's gospel. I, what I think Paul is doing here is he's, he's not just combating heresy in negative terms. He opens up very strong in this chapter, just as he opened the letter, but he then moves and he pivots to discussing things that ought, that ought to be given to those who are mature. What Paul's doing is he's saying, I expect you to be won over by the truth, beauty, and goodness of these doctrines, which I'm going to put out for, for you. That's what he's saying to, to the, the Galatian church. And so I, I'm just absolutely in awe of God, the way that Paul is closing this chapter. I think you're going to see something extremely beautiful today. So Paul has wrestled with the Galatians about the question, what is the identifying mark of those who belong to the people of God. The question that the Galatians were trying to settle is, how do we know who is in and who is out? And if you think this is exclusionary, you do this all the time. You know who's in and who's out. That's exactly what we saw in the last chapter. Paul rebuked Peter because Peter was not walking in step with the gospel, claiming that the Gentiles would have faith in Christ, but then separating himself from the Gentiles by his practice. We saw how Paul said that amounted to a denial of horizontal justification or horizontal salvation, which then gave him great concern that Peter had also been divorced from the vertical justification. What do I mean by that? Peter's actions with the people around him, his refusal to meet with these other brothers and sisters who named Christ actually was belying a secret darkness of his own understanding of how he was justified with God. 
That's what 1 John says quite plainly. How can we say we love God who we haven't seen when we hate our brother who we have seen? Paul's saying the exact same thing. The unity and coherence of the New Testament is stunning. And so Paul is talking about this very subject. What is the mark on those who call themselves children of God? If you, like, for example, if you're at a store, you can look at a mark of authenticity, or you can see a barcode, or you can see a certain product. I love doing this at Kroger because you get to see, like, you see this thing at Kroger. It says, like, simple truth, and you're like, who's making this? You turn it upside down. Kroger Corporation. It's, it's the proof of who's, it's their stamp on that product. That, that's what these Galatians are arguing about is, what is the stamp on the people of God? How do I know who is in that redeemed community of God or out of that redeemed community of God? And the way they were answering this question and asking that question is, who's a part of Israel and who's not a part of Israel? And what they have failed to understand is that God has transcended their understanding of the national boundaries or cultural boundaries of the nation of Israel, but has moved on to, as Paul closes in this book, the Israel of God. The question is this, what determines whether a person is part of God's covenant people? Who is a child of Abraham? And again, hearing this in the context of the New Testament, this question has come up again and again. John the Baptist, when he is warring with the Pharisees, preaching a baptism of repentance, he calls them a brood of vipers, and he then rebukes them saying, do not presume to say that you can call Abraham your father, right? That's the, that's the question that he's settling in his ministry as he's preparing the nation for the coming of the Messiah. And so the Galatians are listening to voices which said that God is only pleased with those who receive circumcision and rely on keeping the law. That phrase rely is going to be very important today. Paul is not saying that keeping the law is wrong, but rather on those who rely on keeping the law. Therefore, the Galatians, by receiving circumcision, they consider themselves as Abraham's children. And if you look at the Old Testament, this is what happened historically. Abraham was given promises, and then he was given a commandment to circumcise all those, both himself and all those who were with him, his children, and all of his servants. Circumcision in Abraham's day was the outward symbol of the inward reality of the promise being received, but it was not so far, so complete to say that those who were circumcised necessarily had received the promise. Abraham receives the promise and is given a command which he obeys. But obeying the command does not necessarily mean that Abraham has received the promise. The promise precedes. Doing the circumcision does not produce the promise, as what Abraham is saying. So, Paul therefore calls these Galatians to account for their actual blessings. You see, in the, in the mind of someone who's living at this time, they consider the people of Israel, as, as the Old Testament clearly tells us, to be God's special people who would be blessed. And Paul knows the Galatian church has come to manifold blessings through the gospel. So when he's asking them, about this issue of circumcision, they're thinking, oh, in order to be blessed, I have to join the people of Israel, but in order to join the people of Israel, I have to receive circumcision and keep the law. 
If I'm to be part of God's special people, I have to do these particular things, not come through the door of Christ. And so because they actually have been blessed already before this circumcision heresy came in, Paul then makes them give an account. He opens up with a series of questions in this section saying, who's bewitched you? And then he, he asks them these experientially focused questions. The question is this, the, the Galatians are asking, how do we know if we'll be blessed? Oh, we have to be blessed by doing these things. And Paul says, wait a second, you've already been proven to be blessed by God. God has already given you his mark of approval, namely this, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What does that imply? It means the Galatians had received the spirit and he's asking them, how did it happen? They're saying we have to obey the law to be part of God's covenant people. And Paul is saying, no, you've already been proven to be God's covenant people. He's given you the spirit. So how did that happen? It happened by hearing with faith. Again, again, he says this, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He sets up a contrast between their motivation and how they got their start in the gospel. Paul belabors this point, showing example after example of the grace of God, which came through the gospel, reminding them of their experience. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? And then he goes on to ask again, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He restates it in in more detail. He expands what he previously said. Incidentally, this is a wonderful argument against the exclusivity of miracles being limited to the apostles because Paul is saying that the Galatians have miracles being worked among them. So if you're ever, and that's a different point altogether, that's not his main point, but it's, it's right there's a wonderful little proof text for you uh, as you're debating people who might deem themselves cessationists. There are works of miracles being done among the Galatian church, and it's not through the apostles, it's through the spirit working in that church. So his point is, he's saying that you have been supplied the spirit, you have miracles working among you, And that has been happening before the Judaism heresy came about. So Paul draws a parallel in this very verse to Abraham's faith, saying that those who believe God have a better family resemblance, so to speak, than those who receive circumcision. What does it have to be in the old covenant during the promise given to Abraham and the administration of that promise? It has to be received through circumcision. It has to be received then through circumcision. Abraham's family was all circumcised. But now what Paul is saying is that those who look like their father Abraham don't just receive circumcision. That's actually not even it at all anymore. It's rather those who look like him or act like him, rather those who believe like him. Look closely at this verse, just as Abraham believed God. He's saying that in the way that you received the gospel with faith, you did that just like Abraham did that. You see, there's not two modes of how God calls men into his covenant people. He always calls them through the promise. 
These Galatians trusted in receiving circumcision as a mark by which they were seen to be in God's redeemed community. This is what they've fully bought into, and Paul destroys their false opinion. He says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you have any understanding of self-identity as a Jew at this point in, in the first century, this verse just destroyed your entire world. What it just said is you're not really an American unless you carry a flag on the 4th of July. It, it's, it's hard to put into context. It's like saying, you know, you, you think you're this great person. You think you're part of, the, part of God's community. Nope, not at all. Unless you have this particular mark, you're not even a Jew. And how radical that is to hear is, is quite hard to put your mind around unless you fully absorb the context of what the first century Judaism was teaching. They're saying, you're of the tribe of Benjamin, doesn't matter. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you're, you are denying Benjamin's father, Isaac, uh, or uh, excuse me, um, Jacob. You're denying the, rate, the root of Israel when you deny Jesus Christ. He's saying that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. This is amazing. Keep that in, in your mind because that's like the bun. That's the top bun on today's idea. We're going to get to the bottom bun, and the bottom bun is really good. It's, you're going to love it. He says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, it actually says in your seed, but look at this closely, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What is he saying? He's saying that those who bear the family resemblance are the true sons of Abraham, and by extension, as he says, the sons of God. That's a, that's a metonymy. It's, it's one phrase that's good to be used for another phrase. Sons of Abraham, sons of God. Same, same idea here. Paul then quotes the final curses of the law in order to demolish their upholding of the law as the standard by which men must attain to be part of God's redeemed community. Paul utters this quote, or Paul uh, quotes the, the curse that was uttered by the Levites as the nation was receiving the law. As the nation was receiving the law, God commanded the Levites to stand on a mountain and shout out the curses that were to come on those who did not keep the law. And in fact, this curse is very educational for us. He says in verse 10, for all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and this is that quote, cursed be everyone who does not buy, abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Other translations say, so as to do them or in order to do them. He, what, what he's saying is, he's, he's saying, even we who received the law knew at the beginning what the law was for. It was to mark out curses. This curse, this final curse uttered that day helps us understand what God's law is. God's law is not a proscriptive element. It cannot ascribe righteousness to anyone because that is contrary to its purpose. God's law, therefore, is the perfect standard of God's holiness and righteousness. Sometimes people read the New Testament in what I call an antinomian fashion. It's not my term, but I like to use that term, an antinomian fashion. What it means is they are rejecting all laws, antinoma, uh, against law. And the antinomian reading of these chapters 
destroys the law and it destroys the original purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was for the nation of Israel and indeed all men throughout the world to have a perfect standard of righteousness and holiness which they can appeal to in writing that is not subject to the whims and fancies of a generation or a person. God's law is the standard of holiness. And that standard perfectly embodies his own nature. That is to say, God gave the law to, tr- to teach the people of Israel how they ought to live as neighbors, as people who were dwelling in the land, as a special community of God's people. Nevertheless, although the law contained within it, as we talked about last week, certain cultural provisions, the larger context of the law, its moral application, still remains biting on Christians. But not as Paul says that formerly they were trapped under the law. Now we are delivered from that captivity so as to be able to understand the purpose of the law from the, from the right That is to say, when we were trapped under the law, Paul argues, we were held captive because we couldn't understand what it was even for. Our sin took on so many effects and so many natures, so many ways of manifestation that we began to even pervert the whole point of the law. He's he's exactly saying this in this place uh, at this point in the book of Galatians. God's curse against law-breaking is not arbitrary. When you hear this verse, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law so as to do them, you may be tempted to think, oh, well, God is just trying to curse certain people who don't line up to his arbitrary, whimsy, uh, fiat-given code for people to behave by. But when you, when you believe that, you totally miss the point of the law. The law is the encoding of God's righteous standard for human life. And that law was given not to establish righteousness, but to mark out sin, to point it, to magnify it, as Paul argues throughout the entire New Testament. It was the ruler by which everyone was deemed to not measure up. That was the whole point of the law and why it was given. God's curse is not arbitrary, but rather it is the natural result of breaking God's law. That is to say, God doesn't just have this arbitrary law that he doesn't actually care about or is kind of, you know, abstract from his nature and character. And if you don't measure up, he then brings a curse. No, actually the law teaches us about all of God's world and all of God's ways. If you murder someone, you're killing an image bearer of God. The law tells us that's sin, even if in our heart we say it's not sin. And we don't don't just become cursed by some arbitrary curse after the fact. The very act of murdering is a destroying of the other, our neighbor, and it's a destruction of who we were made to be as the image of God. This is why God's law was given. It was given to teach them of their deep need, not just for being unified from man to man, but indeed being unified to God. That's the point of the law. Verse 11, Paul then says, it's evident, therefore, because that's the point of the law, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Those who don't follow the law, especially certain laws, actually die. 
That's, it's very clear that Paul is talking about death versus life. And he's not just talking about spiritual death versus spiritual life. He's, he's saying it, it's much larger than capital crimes and capital punishment. The law has much larger applications. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That is, the one who comes to rely upon the works of the law must completely fulfill it. And that, as Paul says, it is impossible for that to take place. Because all have sinned, therefore all have cur- are cursed. That's what he's saying. Cursed is everyone who does not do every one of the commandments of the law. Have you ever had a, a, a God in your life greater than Yahweh? Have you ever loved anything more than Yahweh? Commandment number one, we're all done. We, we don't need to even move on to commandment number two. The point is this, that all have sinned and therefore all are cursed and Christ satisfied the demands of the law. Part of the curses of the law, they're in, in, contained within the law itself. The law demands that the people of Israel, look at capital crime after capital crime, the law demands that they execute justice. It says, so you will purge the evil from among your midst. These are part of the commandments. And the question here is, when we hear the law's demands, we, we can't say anything other than, woe is me. I'm completely done. I've been marked as a transgressor. The law has pointed me out. The law has revealed what's in my heart, and it's proved not just in my heart, but by my deeds that I have been cursed by God because I have broken his law and am contrary to his nature and purpose. That in myself, I am the embodiment of sin. That is what the law shows me. That's why Paul says it was a guardian. It trapped everything under sin. The law marks out those who need redeeming and need that redeeming to be done by someone who is not them. Because once you're cursed, as you read through the law, you understand you can't ever not be cursed unless God himself is the one who cleanses you. Look at the laws on leprosy or the laws on murder. Once capital punishment comes, comes about, there's no repair from that if you, didn't, if you didn't know. We don't have lethal execution in our culture that much anymore. And so from time to time, we miss the fact that it's part of God's law. But think about this. You know, if you commit a robbery, you have the chance for restitution. But if you murder someone during the robbery, there is no more chance for restitution. There's no repair after that. The law itself, to satisfy its demands, it clearly cannot be done by man. And that's exactly what Paul is arguing here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he didn't do it arbitrarily by setting the law aside, but rather he became as one born under the law, as Paul will argue in the next chapter. And he was cursed because cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And why did he do this? As Paul says in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you were here during the Sunday school hour and also next week, you'll probably hear more about that, that 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 is the promise of God to the Gentiles, that God gives a promise to Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. And then Paul says, the reason why Christ was cursed on a tree 
is so that he would satisfy the demands of the law, completely fulfilling it, and delivering all of those who were subject to the fear of death and delivering them from the demands of the law. Christ became accursed and he tasted death to deliver those who were under the curse and yet those who were chosen by God to inherit the promise. One of, the, one of my great loves of the New Testament is just this theory that I have and every time I read it, it just gets more and more clear. I'm a big proponent of the Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews because there are so many places that he argues in the same way with the same words and the same phrases and appeals to the same verses in the Old Testament. And this is one of those places. Christ's death on the cross was mightily effective for those who were the sons of Abraham. And those sons of Abraham are not, as, as the Judaizers were saying, ethnic Jews, circumcised Jews, but rather, as Paul argues, Jews in heart. Paul, therefore, is seeking to demonstrate and show forth the beauty of Christ, and he demonstrates exactly how this has come about. He, he first states the fact, Christ was cursed so that he could satisfy the demands of the law, fulfilling the curse that was due on all men, and yet he has satisfied that curse for the sons of Abraham, and therefore he is going to fulfill the promise so that the promise given to Abraham would come to the Gentiles. But the question that we have to ask ourselves now as good Bible readers is, how does that work? There's a mystery in play here, and the mystery is specific to the covenant given to Abraham. And we're gonna look here at some words that were given to Abraham because I want you to see one of the beautiful aspects of the nature of Jesus Christ and his person and work in his office as the mediator, the one through whom the covenant is fulfilled. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. One of the things that I love about this verse here as we're gonna discuss it is sometimes English is really bad and it confuses things and other times English is really beautiful. And in this way, modern English with its plural or singular meaning of the word offspring is very helpful to illustrate Paul's point. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now hear that clearly. God was telling Abraham, in you I will bless all the nations. But the Jews think at this time the promises were given to Abraham. Paul says, wait a second, the promises were given to Abraham and to his offspring. So every time you hear something given to Abraham, it's not just given to Abraham alone, it's given to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Hold the phone. Abraham had two boys, Ishmael, Isaac. He didn't have Christ. What is Paul talking about here? Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul's arguing here that there was a promise given and the law which came after cannot set aside the promise. It does nothing to change the nature of the promise. Verse 18, for if, if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no longer, it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see, the promise given to Abraham was especially important. And in Genesis 15, as we're about to look, 
If you wanna go read this, it'll help you understand the context. Genesis 15 begins with a question of who's gonna inherit the promise? That's what Abraham is, is doing as he's bearing his heart before God. He's saying, you've promised me that my offspring would inherit this, but I have no offspring. I only have this servant, a bond servant. And God says, no, your servant won't inherit it, but rather your son will, your child will. That's really the beginning of this inheritance question is who inherits the promise? As Paul is gonna argue later in this book, is it a servant or is it a son? And even in Genesis 15, we see, no, God settles the question. It's the son who's born of freedom, not the slave who inherits the promise. The question that they're asking themselves in the Galatian church is, how do we receive the promises of God? And we know we can only receive them if we're part of Abraham's nation. And we know that we have to be circumcised and keep the law to obtain Abraham's promise. But Paul is saying, no, even Abraham's heirs did not receive the promise by keeping the law because the law was not even yet given until 430 years afterwards. Isaac received the promise by faith. Jacob received the promise by faith. Joseph went down into Egypt by faith. He came back up by faith. Moses brought him with him. The point is this, that he's arguing the promise transcends their understanding. Now, I want to look really closely at the promise given to Abraham. Paul makes a big point about this, and this should cause you to, make, to have some questions because he just asserted very strongly that Abraham was told a promise and that promise was given to an offspring and that offspring is singular. Paul makes a very big point out of that offspring being singular. He was not speaking of Ishmael nor Isaac, but Christ. But the question is this, didn't God also promise to multiply Abraham's offspring? And the answer is yes, he did. In fact, we'll look, Genesis 15, five and six. He, he, Yahweh, brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Wait a second, Paul, I just heard you say that the offspring was not plural, but Christ. How can Christ be multiplied? I don't know about this, but it's very simple math. One times one equals one. And the the mystery of God as Paul is seeing it is so exceptionally beautiful. It's hard to miss. Verse six, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is, God was the one who marked Abraham as righteous because Abraham believed God. Interestingly enough, the book of Genesis also says that Abraham walked in all of God's ways and statutes and commandments and ordinances, even though they weren't yet given for 430 years later. You can work that one out on your own. If Paul says Abraham's offspring was Christ, how can Abraham's offspring be multiplied? This should cause you a great dilemma. It should be very perplexing at this point. If God says your offspring will be multiplied so that you are not able to be numbered, that they're not able to be numbered, and then Paul asserts very clearly that the offspring is Christ singular, not plural, how can a singular thing be multiplied? Genesis 22, the reiteration of the promise after Abraham proved that he was faith-filled by being willing to sacrifice Isaac. 
This is a reiteration of the promise, a confirmation of the promise that God gives to Abraham, Genesis 22. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. What a wonderful promise. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, so in Genesis 15, we hear that there will be an innumerable count of offspring. Here, he goes on to say, I'll multiply them like the stars of the the heavens and the sand of the seashore. By the way, attempting to count either one of those will be futile. It is impossible to count those things. You could probably do some sort of mathematical expansion based on the law of averages, but it would not be an accurate number. It's undoable. It can't be done. The point is this, that God gives him a promise, they'll be multiplied, and they will. Po- your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Notice his enemies. Isn't that interesting? And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So clearly, when Paul says that Christ is the offspring, we can say yes and amen. We know that Paul is right. These things did come about to Jesus Christ. Clearly, Christ possesses the gate of his enemies. He makes this statement. He says, I'm going to establish my church, and the gate of hell will not prevail against it. The church is going on raiding parties into the enemy's territory. It's smashing down the gates, and it's reaching into the pit of darkness and redeeming those who are the sons of Abraham who have been in captivity. Nevertheless, we also hear by John the Revelator, he has a vision and in it he hears Jesus Christ say to him, I possess, I own, I have the key of death and Hades. Christ has the authority not only just over earthly life, but he has authority over spiritual life. He owns the keys. But the question is this, if Christ is the singular offspring, how can Abraham's offspring be multiplied? We got two out of the three promises in Genesis 22, but it still doesn't make sense. How is Jesus able to be multiplied? Are there going to be more Jesuses around? Yes and no. (laughs) Paul's settling this question. That's his point. He's saying the offspring was one person. You're all debating the question of how do we know who are Abraham's sons, who are Abraham's heirs. And Paul is saying that there was only one offspring and that offspring was Christ. The Judaizers answer this question through their own gospel. That's what he said in in the first chapter. He said, I'm shocked that you're leaving the gospel. Not that there really is a different gospel, but you pretend like there is a different gospel. They have begun spreading their own gospel of law-keeping and circumcision receiving in order to be marked as those who are in God's community. They have this gospel that they will be spreading through observance of the law, that through the observance of the law, all the other nations will become just as blessed as Israel. You can see how flawed that sort of thinking is when you look at the history of Israel because they proved that they were never able to keep the law. They went into captivity time and again. Even when entering the land for the first time, having just received the law, they turned away from receiving the promise, not wanting to inherit the land. They didn't want to go in. And so 
we can see their gospel is flat on its face, but this is what they're teaching. They're teaching that Abraham's offspring is only going to be multiplied by Israel thriving. This is why the book of Numbers and the writings and records of who went away into captivity and come back are actually very important because they show us that Israel is decimated time after time. Israel grows and then chopped off at the feet over and over again because of her manifold sins and hatred of keeping God's law. And yet these Judaizers come along and say, wait a second, let's turn over a new leaf. Let's just try again. This time it'll work. Paul's saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. Paul settles the question definitively, revealing the identity of the sons of God as those who have become partakers in Christ. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That guardian was the law given for us for a time to show us of our deep need for Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul has just changed their entire understanding of who is Israel. Who are the sons of God? Is it the nation of Israel? Is it Jacob, my son, Esau? I've, I've loved Jacob, hated Esau. I've taken Israel. I've despised Edom. I've despised the other nations. They're all worthless to me. No, in fact, indeed, it's almost the opposite now. What he's saying is those who receive Jesus Christ have been proven to be sons of God. Now we know definitively the sons of God are those who are in Christ. And therefore, even so, because of that fact, the marker which identified Jew and Gentile, free man, free woman versus slave woman, slave man, and also male and female, that marker has been completely removed and set aside. For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's helpful to remember circumcision is a male-only event. Uh, what he's saying is the marker which identified Jew versus Gentile and consequently the, the free woman versus the bondwoman and also the man versus the woman, that marker has been set aside completely and now all who are in whatever state they are in are called to repentance and baptism in Christ. He says, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male, female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You remember that question? How is it possible for a singular thing to be multiplied? The mystery of God hidden in Christ before all ages at Finally, now at this time, as Paul's writing has been revealed, God through Christ has multiplied the, the nation of Israel, so to speak, but not the external nation of Israel, the spiritual nation of Israel. Those who are children of Abraham inherit the promises by faith, not circumcision. Again, Hebrews reiterates this in the same words. The point is this in verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Praise be to God. Look at that. We're in the one. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Isn't this amazing? That through just a little turn of phrase, God has hidden the glory of Jesus Christ. And that over time and through his incarnation and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has revealed the answer to how God would multiply Abraham's seed. That seed went into the earth and it died and it bore fruit. And that fruit 
yielded many and lasted forever. Paul reveals this, that through Christ, God has raised up a multitude of children from Abraham. Remember what John the Baptist said, don't presume that Abraham can be your father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That is exactly what the gospel is. God took dead stoned sons of Adam and made them anew in Christ Jesus and they have become the sons of Abraham. John the Revelator sees this exact fulfillment of God's promise. I want to end here because it's so beautiful in what it says about the multitude around God's community. No longer is it just Jew and the Gentiles are out. No longer are men exclusively referred to as covenant heads, but now the females are also also involved in this experience that they have been all made kings and priests. This is the wonderful vision that that John has. He doesn't just see men, Jewish men, around the throne of the Lamb. He doesn't say that at all. Verse 9 of Revelation 7, And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the lamb. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would magnify Jesus Christ even as you have magnified him. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to behold your beauty, that we would be able to see how your son was the one through whom the promises were given to Abraham and fulfilled to Abraham. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from wrong understandings of the law, both the wrong understanding of seeking to be justified by our performance before you and also setting it aside, thinking it has no claim on us or no, nothing to teach us, but that you would show us the full covenant promise that we've been given not only new life in Christ, but also the spirit by whom we do the law from the inner parts. We pray, God, that you would restore to us not only the understanding of the law and its proper use, but also a great understanding of Jesus Christ, that we would see him in all of his beauty, not only in his role, but also in his person. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.